yeah, definitely. I think a lot about with even with big charities, or sorry, big organisations today, it's about the leaders not expecting other people to do what they wouldn't do. And that's one thing that Ed really admired with Shackleton, the, um, the Antarctic explorer, and, you know, a man who had that amazing story of survival, but he never got, never did or never expected anyone to do something that he as the leader wouldn't do himself. Welcome back to the Map and the Territory podcast. My guest today is George Hillary. George is a philanthropist, he's an adventurer, he's ambassador of the Australian Himalayan Foundation and a member of the Himalayan Trust of New Zealand. He's a passionate climber, summiting many, many peaks. He's an explorer. And if his name sounds familiar, it's because George is the grandson of the great Sir Edmund Hillary. And today's episode was a real treat. We get a behind-the-scenes look, or behind-the-curtain look, at the the life and works of a, a great man and a, a great leader. We extract some of the, the lessons and the takeaways that we can all start to apply in our own lives. It was a lot of fun, and... George is a fascinating guy himself and uh, a man full of wisdom, insight and perspective. So I really think you'll enjoy this episode. And we bring this episode to you by Leaders for Good. Leaders for Good is an organization committed to helping leaders and organizations live a more purposeful work life. If you're looking to embed people and planet to your work, not at the expense of profit, but in a way that amplifies it, go to leadersforgood.org and check it out. So without further ado, I bring you this wide-ranging conversation with George Hillary. Super excited to have a conversation today and kind of dive into maybe some of the, the unknowns that the audience might have about kind of the, the, the myth, the man and the legend. Uh, but before we, before we do that, just a little bit about yourself, uh, George, you know, if, if somebody meets you and, and says, Hey, George, what, what are you up to? What are you about? What do you do? Um, just, just kind of paint, paint a bit of a picture of you for, for the audience, if you will. Yeah, absolutely. So as I said, my name is George Hillary and I guess the, the best fun fact is that my grandfather is Sir Edmund Hillary, the, the first man along with Tenzing Norgate to summit Mount Everest and went on to do a whole lot of amazing philanthropy work. And um, But in my own life, I'm very involved with the Australian Himalayan Foundation. Um, I'm a member of the Himalayan Trust New Zealand, where I've just nominated for the board there. So we'll see how that goes in due course. Um, and also in uh, nine to five, Monday to Friday, work for an investment company in Melbourne. Beautiful. Um, and I, I'm really interested in getting into your, your work with the, with the foundation and, and kind of what that looks like and, and also the roots of that as well, I think, are, are, are a pretty interesting uh, story. But maybe, maybe as a jumping off point, um, Edmund Hillary, I think people are, are kind of would probably be familiar with his bio at a very cursory level and certainly the big achievements. But mm. um, what are some things people might not know about Edmund? What, can, you, can, you, can you paint a, paint a bit of a picture of the man for us? Yeah, of course. I, it might sound cliche, but he was um, a remarkably ordinary guy. And that's, that's one mm. of the funny things about how he went on to achieve so many amazing things. But he was just, he was just doing what he wanted to do. He, um, he never felt this need to excel in a way that would 
you know, have him held in such high regard and have him on the $5 New Zealand note. Um, he was obviously incredibly passionate and strong-willed, and that's what helped him and Tenzing do that final push on Everest. Um, but in terms of the rest of his life after 1953, he just wanted to, he wanted to give back. He loved the Himalayas. He loved climbing. Um, mm. He loved helping those around him. So he was really just an ordinary guy doing what he wanted to do. And I hear stories about um, when my dad and my aunt would go on camping trips with him and he's, it just sounded like uh, an absolute comedy way to happen. They had this little mini Cooper. They used to strap a life raft onto the top and drive on down to the South Island of New Zealand, almost like a, a Monty Python sort of skit, but that was them <laughs> going on their, their holidays. Beautiful. Um, and I think one of the things that fascinates me about uh, Edmund Hillary's kind of history and, and some of the stories about him are, are potentially what we can extract as lessons for leaders and, and people, um, well, lessons for life, but certainly lessons for leadership mm. as well. And, and I think his philosophy, his principles, um, and the, the kind of integrity that he seemed to, to hold and kind of carry through into everything really paints a picture of why he was so successful. Um, it's often the people who kind of, uh, are driven by something other than the passion are, dri- are driven by wanting to be in charge are driven by wanting to, you know, have their name in lights that are the, mm-hmm. you know, the ones you've got to watch out for. But uh, any examples you could unpack of, of his, um, you know, how he, how he approached life in terms of his, yeah, his principles or his philosophy. Um, what's, uh, what yeah, comes up for you there? Definitely. The, the whole, all the charity work started um, on a trip to Nepal after the 1953 expedition and obviously Ed had built quite a profile for himself and was already held in high regard within the, the mountain climbing communities around the world and in Nepal. Mm. And the story goes that after a large day out of an expedition, they get back to their, their lodge or their camp and um, everyone sits down and all the, the local Sherpas run around and start getting tea and dinner for everyone and they come up and they serve Ed his tea and he just sort of thinks to himself that this isn't really fair. These guys are working just as hard as us. We need to change this. Mm. And his motto from, uh, for his life onwards was basically just, if you've got plenty of something and someone else has nothing, you need to do something about that. Mm. And it's not just money. It might be in, in Australia and New Zealand, we've got great education, we've got great healthcare. Why can't we export that to the rest of the world? And that's what he wanted to do. Mm. Mm. Yeah, that's fantastic. And, the the very fact that he he kind of um championed uh, like uh norgay's kind of um i guess equal equal lording in the in the in the summit mm. summit attempt and and was kind of insistent on him him being as recognized on the on the kind of same level um again speaks to somebody who wasn't in it for the glory and was in it and and had a deep sense of kind of fairness and integrity and kind of equity about him yeah, definitely. And, and that's one thing um, that my dad's generation and my generation as well, we're always really strong about reminding people that it was Ed and Tenzing. And mm. because the way mountaineering is now, particularly in the Himalayas, there's that real relationship between the Sherpas and the Westerners that the Sherpas are leading the Westerners up the mountain, which is, is true now in 2020. Mm. Um, but back in 53, no one had been up there. Um, mm. They were climbing together. They were 100% a team. There mm. were moments where Tenzing was the stronger climber. There were moments where Ed was the stronger climber and irrespective of who actually placed their foot on the summit first, to be honest, I don't even really know who it was. It was never, mm. never discussed about in our family. Mm. They were tied to the same rope 
um, mm. the nature of climbing is someone's got to be leading that way on a narrow ridge. There's not room for two people, nor is it safe actually for two people to walk side by side because when you're roped together, if, if you're walking side by side and someone falls, you're going to fall immediately as well. The whole mm. premise is that you stand 15 metres back so that if something did happen to them, you've got the opportunity to self-arrest and save both of you. Um, so they got there as a team, regardless of who placed their, their foot on the summit first. That's beautiful. I, I love that. Just as a metaphor, um, uh, you know, you could, you could look at organisations and, and draw that we're all tied to the same rope um, metaphor. Mm. And, and again, it doesn't matter who, who, who places their foot over the, over the finish line or on the summit first. Um, but yeah. also, also just as a society, you know, we were, before we hit record on this episode, we were just talking about the, the standard intro topic of conversation people have these days, which is, you know, COVID-19 and uh, yeah. our kind of shared, uh, you know, shared experience of that. But really in, in that respect, as well we're all tied to the same rope you know we all we all rely on each other to um mask up and keep distance Mm. and get tested and it's when we don't do that as a collective that we kind of let the let the hole down and and we all um you know we all suffer as a result so i think that's i think that's really beautiful Mm. um yeah yeah yeah. Oh, I was, okay. and, and just you know, bring it back to, to COVID-19. I think people do forget that this is probably the biggest lesson we've had um, mm. in, in recent memory where it really does count on if the, weaker, the weakest link doesn't do their job, we all go down with them. It just takes that one guy to not wear a mask who's positive at the supermarket and bang, 100 people get it. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And and from a leadership perspective as well, um, and I'm not thinking of any... Um, global superpower in particular who might have a questionable um, commander-in-chief at the moment but when it becomes about saving face your own image your own ego and not the the good of the collective you you see the consequences and you see the results and you compare and contrast that with um well, with um, with yours and, and Edmund's, uh, you know, home country of New Zealand, and you see the the kind of uh, you know the the fantastic example of leadership um, uh, over there at the moment. It's uh, it's kind of night and day, and the results are, are night and day as well. And I think that's a that's a sort of interesting parallel there. Um, mm. Edmund's relationship with the Sherpas in general, I think, is uh, I think is is kind of is fascinating and maybe that leads us into a discussion around the the foundation um if you could yeah maybe say say a bit more about the origins of that and and maybe what's what's occurring there at the moment yeah definitely so and the the initial starting point was the himalayan trust new zealand and that's where it all began for ed and it was all just about bringing those opportunities of education and healthcare to these communities because at the end of the day if people don't have the resources to feed themselves and their family that they can't progress through life. You can't even think about your son and your daughter becoming an engineer in Kathmandu. You, you know, you're struggling to put food on the table in the mm. um, So you've got to bring those basics to people first. And Nepal, it's, it's a wonderful place. It's a developing place. And it's mm. one of those things where the, the government in Nepal doesn't have the means, the understanding, the resources to adequately provide and, and help these communities. So sometimes it takes a, an international movement to come in and help them to help them rise up mm-hmm. and that, that's where it all began and then you know from there it's it's launched into the australian himalayan foundation there's foundation the american himalayan foundation canadian german they're all operating independently um but they're 
they're targeting the same goal. They're helping different areas in Nepal, funding different mm. schools, different hospitals. Um, mm. It's just become this huge movement that started back in the 60s. Yeah, right. Beautiful. Um, Nepal is one of my favorite places that I've had the had the privilege of, of visiting. Um, me and my partner um, took a sort of relatively unconventional route to get from the UK to Australia. When we moved over here, we went on a massive cycle tour. So we, we basically rode from the UK to Australia and um, oh, spent, wow. a month, spent a month riding around uh, Nepal as well. And I just found it to be that a the, the people in Nepal were some of the friendliest, most humble, just lovely people to to be around uh, that we encountered. You know, beautiful, obviously, <coughs> abs- bless you, uh, absolutely <laughs> stunning, absolutely stunning country as well. Um, but the uh, and and one of my most enduring memories. Kat and I, my partner, were, we were riding our bikes up to the top of a, up to a, up to a, a village, which was, you know, up a, a climb that took us about half an hour to ride up. Um, and these school kids just ran alongside us the entire time chatting to us. And we were working hard to get up this hill. I'm like, man, these are some tough people. <laughs> <laughs> the, 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 yeah. and like these were you know 10 year old kids um whatever and you know we let them sort of kind of have a ride around on the bikes and stuff after that but um yeah just a just a stunning country i don't know where i was going with that no nowhere in particular <laughs> other than just expressing my own fondness for the place yeah well that that happens and you sort of you think about your your time there and it's it's a land where you just go on big rides and big walks and you sort of get lost in the scenery and you don't you don't have to have a a goal or a purpose of where you're going, you just want to get out there, and that's what Nepal's great for. Yeah, yeah. Um, any famous uh, or, or not so famous, I guess, but any any lessons of kind of uh, setbacks or, or failures, or, or you know, any anything from from Edmund's life in in that respect that maybe we don't hear so much about? Because um, we, you know, we we hear about the the high highs, literally in this case. But um, yeah, I'm just wondering if there was mm. if there's any any stories in that camp. Yeah, and Ed definitely, he had a lot of triumphs that we all hear about, but there was definitely some really challenging years in his life. Um, and before 53, he went through a really challenging time where he was um, a conscientious objector from the war, uh, which right. absolutely had its merits. And because he worked in industry where um, they were uh, honey, uh, producing honey, so it was considered a vital resource, so he, was, mm. he stayed back. Um, but because of the mindset of people, a lot of people called him a, a wuss. They called him mm-hmm. soft. He wasn't mm-hmm. brave. And mm-hmm. you know, you've got a, a young guy trying to sort of figure out where he stands in life and he's getting letters back from his friends um, at the war telling him he's soft and he's weak. It, it sort of really plays in your conscience. And so mm. it takes a pretty strong person to, to come out of that at the other end and, and keep striving to make things better. Um, mm. you, you definitely forgive someone in that respect to become quite insular and just want to look after themselves. Um, and then, of course, the, the tragedy of losing his wife and his daughter on that plane crash. There was obviously mm. pretty dark years after that. Um, but, again, he managed to push through that. And he never, he probably never fully recovered in the sense that you, there's always in a, you're always incredibly sad by what happened. Mm. You probably can't think about them without getting that, that lump in your throat. That's what my, happens to my dad now even. Of course. But he was able to continue the work. He was able to continue the fundraising Mm. He was able to to carry on with his life. Yeah, beautiful. And 
just doing a bit of a bit of more research um, into Edmund. It's funny hearing you call him Ed, and and of course that's completely natural for you. I suppose it just it's uh, it's the uh, yeah the, the kind of weird informality of that for me. Um, but uh, doing a bit of research, um, and I came across something that he was involved with this this radiant living, um, this this concept of kind of which which seemed well ahead of its time. It, it seemed to be the kind of you know um, focus on nutrition, focus on mindset, focus like very um, you know it wouldn't look much different to a kind of modern day um, you know Tony Robbins esque kind of um, mm. kind of involvement and. And, uh, you know, back then that must have seemed really quite fringe, I would imagine, and really quite kind of out there. But, but to me, pointing to a really progressive way of thinking about kind of mind and body and spirit. And I, I, yeah, I don't know if there's any more to say on that, but I thought that was fascinating. Yeah, I, I haven't, it's funny, I haven't heard of um, Radiant Living, but it doesn't surprise me to hear that he was, I guess, ahead of his time back then in the, the 60s and 70s, because he was always a remarkably open-minded person. Um, mm. I heard this great interview he did with I think it was the BBC back in the early or late seventies, and he mm. had to list his favourite songs and then explain why they were his favourite. And it was always about songs that had a, a strong political message. And back mm. then, he kind of saw the way society looked and behaved. He's like, I don't really think this is right. We need to be more progressive. Um, and, he, and he's always been like that. And Ed had great friends who were gay back in that generation, where it's just it's unheard of to to mm. be so outspoken in that respect. I don't know. If, if many people know this, one of the um, original members of the 53 expedition was transgender, James Morris, later known as Jan right? Morris. Yeah, and Ed didn't care at all. They caught up for, I think the story goes, they were in, I think it was Mount Cook National Park, they called up for a drink, and Ed thought he was still catching up with James Morris. Yeah. And all of a sudden, this, this lady sat next to him, and she goes, oh, hi, Ed, it's, it's James here. And he goes, wow, you've changed quite a lot. <laughs> but it, it didn't matter. They had a laugh, they had a drink, and, and they carried on. It just goes to show that that good humans who are warm-hearted and open-minded and and just you know just loving and inclusive of everybody have have kind of existed in perpetuity and and really it's the you know the the kind of culture is always catching up to um to to a you know to to that kind of evolved mindset um mm. that you know we we hope more people more people have out there but I'm thinking about in terms of lessons, uh, you know, lessons for, for leadership. And we kind of touched on this uh, a little bit. Um, are there any other examples or any other stories about, um, about Edmund that, that, that you think sort of serve to highlight that his, his character as a leader or pull out anything that we could, we could take away in that respect? Mm. I, I think it's, it was all about having a purpose behind your work and, and ultimately Everyone has a purpose behind something that they do, and mm. whether it's to, to look after their family, to whether it's political, social, whatever it may be, um, we all kind of live for something larger than ourselves at the end of the day. And, and you could say that was why Ed did all this charity work, because you want to have something that lasts beyond you. But for him, it was just about having that greater purpose behind why he did things, the way he did things. Um, he was able to bring all those different Himalayan charities together, the Australian, New Zealand, American, etc. He'd get on the phone, and all of a sudden, they're all working towards one project, and that's a bit harder to, to do these days because Ed was that binding figure between all of their all of their objectives. And unfortunately, he's gone. But he was always very good at, at bringing people together and producing a great outcome. And yeah, that's what he did for pretty much his whole life. Mm. I, and that notion of purpose is is 
you know kind of well baked into the you know into the notions of leadership and and i think but i think it's often given lip service um by by kind of many leaders and many organizations and and this um this notion of kind of purpose washing and, you know, orgs and businesses all all come up with a a nice sounding statement and and write it on a wall somewhere. But in terms of it being truly motivating and truly meaningful for, for the people doing the work, I think that's a, that's a missed trick. And um, you can kind of see in a, in a, you know, the, the kind of the, the Himalayan trust and the the foundation in terms of an enduring organization that, Mm. that's, still exists today and is still kind of active and active and alive um, speaks to a, you know, that, that deep rooted purpose there. And, and um, you know, that, that serves to enhance its, enhance its impact, I suppose. Yeah, definitely. I think a lot about within big charities, oh, sorry, big organizations today, mm. it's about the leaders not expecting other people to do what they wouldn't do. And that's one thing that Ed really admired with Shackleton, the, um, the mm. Antarctic explorer, and, you mm. know, a man who, had that amazing story of survival, but he never got, never did or never expected anyone to do something that he as the leader wouldn't do himself. And Mm. that's probably where when you've got a big organization, like a bank, for example, who live by a slogan, but you see that the CEO walk in and you think to yourself, you know, they don't, they don't live by this slogan. <laughs> and that, that's kind of, that's where it might break down really quickly because the people at the bottom don't feel respected by those at the top. So mm. it's, it's great to um, have these wonderful ways, or sorry, rather having these slogans by which you live, but you've got to act them out as well. Mm. I think there's a, uh, I think there's a, I'm um, I'm reading um, "Let My People Go Surfing" at the moment, which is um, uh, the the book um, by the founder of Patagonia, Schwinard. And, oh, okay. Uh, yeah, and Patagonia as an organisation is um, just kind of one of my uh, one of my sort of organisational crushes. Like their their commitment to the environment, their commitment to sustainability and ethical supply mm. chain and kind of building their products to last and and all of those those valuable values and you know their their explicit mission statement as an organization is we are in business to save our home planet like that is mm. that is why patagonia exists as a as an organization and um the book kind of starts off unpacking the sort of the, the humble origins of the of the organization and it really was just born out of this deep love of the outdoors this deep love of the uh, of of sport and and the environment and and kind of connection mm. And and that's kind of passed through um, into you know into the organisation today, and and it really does come of the well the you know the uh, you know the the leaders of that organisation are also the organisation's biggest customers and, and and kind of the biggest fans because you know they want to build stuff that they want to use and they want to want to get out there. So um, you know, and then yeah, you juxtapose this as you said with the with the maybe the CEO of the bank kind of walking in and making decisions that you know perhaps don't don't align with what's written on the wall <laughs> so mm, um yeah. i just just kind of reminded me there with the connection with nature yeah yeah definitely and patagonia is a great example and, and i think more and more businesses they, they've got to catch up to this or they're going to get caught out really badly mm. um if you're not working in a system and the fact that in, in the investment world you've got a, a class of investments called sustainable investments uh, does that mean the other ones are not sustainable so if you're invested yeah, in yeah. they could disappear in the next five years and yeah. you don't have to be a rocket scientist to see that all the funds that are outperforming they're, they're the ones designated with what we call esg environmental mm. social and governance yeah and companies that don't fall into those brackets they're just going to 
they're going to fall behind and people are going to be, be caught out really suddenly. And, and even um, some of the big um, kind of investment groups, so BlackRock um, fairly recently said they're not going to um, make any investments into organizations that don't have a sort of explicit commitment to a triple mm. bottom line to people, planet and profit. Um, and it's those kind of moves that I think that we're seeing in, in, you know, in, in investment land, in venture capital land mm. that are, are really going to start to drive business in a different direction. Um, yeah, curious to pick your brains more on that as well, because obviously you professionally you you live in that world. Um, is there anything else you're seeing as far as um, you know sus- the move towards more sustainable business? Yeah, I, we're gradually seeing more and more cash flow into those those ethically conscious funds, um, and even though they're actually they outperform all the others by an absolute country mile, but people are still kind of tentative to get into them because it's not the the norm yet. But what I think is going to happen, particularly with assets like coal and oil, one day there's just going to be a huge market correction. The same what we saw in March with COVID-19 pandemic, same thing we saw in 2008 with the GFC, same thing we saw in um, 2000 with the dot-com bubble. Mm. All of a sudden, these assets that uh, have some sort of value, it's, just, it's going to disappear and there won't be any buyer and their value will hit zero immediately. Mm. And we saw that actually back in March or April, where the price of oil futures hit minus $36 or something, which means you had to pay someone else $36 to take this asset off your hands. That was a, that was a glimpse into the future for me. And that's going to happen with people that are invested in these assets. That's fascinating. I, 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 it, it, it's a wacky world and it speaks to the fact that we have our incentives and our, our, our kind of something is broken in a system where you have to pay somebody $36 to take something like that, that has, that has, you know, inherent value in it. It's a, it's a, it's a valuable resource. It's got, you know, many, many uses. Oil can be turned into many, many things. That's, that's wild. That's absolutely wild. Um, yeah. Yeah. I didn't mean to divert us too much onto that topic, but I think it, I think that's fascinating. Um, so any advice, uh, so I guess the advice there would be to, to kind of move into more ethically focused super funds, ethically focused investment from, from your perspective with a big asterisk uh, yeah. that we are not giving financial advice exactly. on this podcast. Yeah. <laughs> Absolutely. All of this is, is general nature, but the same message applies for your investment decisions and just the way general businesses run. If, if you're relying on a, um, a network that's ultimately unsustainable and using businesses that are just... They rely on you know, non-renewable energy, whatever it may be, or they, they use businesses overseas and unfortunately very poor social practices, child labour, those sorts of things, no women on the board. Um, they're going to fall behind really rapidly. And so I think if, if businesses here in Australia, largely you know, we're very open-minded, we're very progressive, we're already catching up on that, but it's about who we partner with overseas. Um, and that's something that's going to be, you know, the spotlight's already on it. It's, it's going to be shining more brightly in the next few years. Mm-hmm. That just kind of reminded me of the, um, you know, the current nature. And I've, I'm sure you've seen the same documentaries I have about the, uh, the, the kind of current state of, of Everest and the current state of summiting and the, the amount mm. of waste and rubbish that gets left up there, the environmental impact of, of kind of people, people making the attempt, you know, the long lines of, of people kind of tethered together on these, um, 
I don't know. It almost seems like fairly irresponsible kind of faux sense. It's like, I'm just going to, I'm just going to pay my way to the top so I can, so I can say I've summited Everest and kind of tick a box mm. and just mainlining oxygen the, the, the whole way. Um, I don't know your, your views on that. And, and, and I guess what would, uh, you know, what would, what would Edmund, um, what would Edmund kind of think or what did he think? I suppose, uh, you know, cause I'm, I'm, I'm assuming we saw some of that while he was still with us. Yeah, it was something that was concerning to him and it's concerning to my dad who's climbed Everest twice and it's you know, it's concerning to me as to a hopeful Everest summit here one day. I was actually yeah. meant to go there this year, but that, all those plans got reversed pretty quickly. Yeah, of course. Um, and yeah, it, it did concern me. He passed away in 2008, but he saw it happening more and more through the 90s and the early 2000s. And it's, it's, a different, it's not a pure way of climbing, that's for sure. And you want mm. climbing to be inclusive of everyone, but... Um, it's got to a point where pe- there's a big gap between the skills that people think they need and what they then go try to do. Mm. Um, and unfortunately, with the, a lot of the climbing companies, some of them just, they're not in a position to tell rich Westerners they're not going to take them up. Now, mm. some are, some mm. of the really successful climbing companies, they're at that point where some 65-year-old who can barely run five kilometres turns up and they'll go, you're, you're not coming up here. And because they have the financial means to say no, no, but then you've got Sherpa guides and other climbing guides who they might be getting paid bonuses based on where they get climbers to, camp two, camp three, camp four, and the summit. Right. And all of a sudden, you know, getting your climber to the summit might be the difference between sending all your kids to school instead of just one of your kids to school. So you're going to drag that guy to the summit <laughs> until, until he says he wants to go down, if he says he wants to keep going. And, and people don't have perspective on life anymore up there because there's so little oxygen in the air your brain's barely working all you're focusing on is one foot in front of the other yeah and um my brother actually in 2019 um we'd all been trekking nepal and i had to go, had to go home but he did a couple of climbs there uh, one of which is on a mountain called lobache which is a very popular acclimatization route for everest climbers because it's just right. nearby um and he saw this this lady and her husband getting literally they were getting dragged up the mountain so they had a rope between their sherpa guide to them and they were just they were obviously standing up but they were just putting one foot in front of the other like a zombie and this guy was dragging them up the mountain because he had to get them acclimatized so they could mm. now go try to climb everest um, and unfortunately she died on everest and her husband only just made it off the mountain alive and there is just no way in in any climate situation in north america or europe that they would have been allowed on the mountain Mm. And unfortunately, that regulation hasn't entered the Himalayas yet. Um, it really needs to. And it, it's, it's the fault of, of both sides. It's not just the Westerners' fault because they don't really know what they don't know. And it's yeah. not just the, the mountain guides' fault because you know, they're in, they're in a, an economically disadvantaged situation. You can't turn to them and go, oh, it's your fault for taking these people up. It's both parties need to come together and find a good balance. It, uh it's a little disheartening but it's also quite a sort of fascinating commentary on on kind of again what we value as a society and it, and it's a bit of an indictment of this kind of materialistic achievement orientated um status driven because mm. that's that's all it is at that point if you're if you're if you're not capable of getting to the top of Everest and truly you know you're not you're not ready and and you're not you know you're not you're not trained you're not a skilled mountaineer you're not you're not fit um and you 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 leverage your cash, you know, your, your wealth to mm. get somebody to literally drag you to the top. What are you proud of? 
you, you know, what, what's the, what's that on behalf of? Because I can completely understand, um, you know, as, 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 as a kind of, you know, outdoor orientated, uh, chap myself who, you know, I run ultras and do triathlon and all that sort of stuff. And the, you know, the, the satisfactions in the, in the training, in the, in the, in the enduring, in the trying. And, and I can completely see somebody like yourself, who's a, you know, experienced outdoorsman and your dad and your granddad kind of taking a great pride in getting to the top of Everest because, you know, you'd be doing it, you'd be doing it right. You'd be doing it the, the kind of, the, the, the kind of a way where you could get a deep personal satisfaction. Um, but, uh, yeah, it it, it requires. It's going to require a kind of again a shift in what we value for for people who are kind of going up there. For I don't want to say the wrong reasons because I'm kind of you know then then kind of moralizing and putting my own lens on it. But yeah, from my perspective, the wrong reasons. Sure, I'll go there. <laughs> yeah, uh, and it's it's one of those. It's, you're right in the sense people do go up there for the wrong reasons because they don't know what they're getting into, and mm. and mountain climbing is a sport where. It doesn't end when the siren goes. After two hours, we all go back to the change rooms and have a shower and, mm. <laughs> and have a warm up and have a beer. It just yeah, that's right. It's re- it's relentless. And like my dad, for example, he turned back on Everest three times um, over three consecutive expeditions before he actually reached the summit. And for some reason, people would look at that now as three failures, but it's it's absolutely not. No, the the success was getting back to base camp and getting home to your family. And that's right. That's when. Um, people's inexperience gets in the way and also the altitude itself gets in the way. And you can you hear stories of what the Everest um, 1996 movie was made about that expedition where really experienced explorers and climbers, unfortunately, they just weren't thinking straight anymore. And that's, I guess, that's a more forgivable mistake because you go, okay, you've got the, the best of the best, Scott Fisher up there and, and he passed away. These things, these things do happen. It is a tragedy. Sure. Completely. But when you look at base camp now and you've got, a hundred people that can't put crampons on that. And that's not a tragedy. That's people stupidly getting into a situation they can't deal with. And, and, and it's putting not only their lives, but the, the, the lives of the Sherpas, the lives of the rescue teams, the, the lives of, mm. of, of everyone around in, in the ecosystem at risk as well, because, um, because, you know, as you said, it's not a, it's not a, it's not a soccer match. It's not a, it's not a marathon in the middle of London where you can just, you know, if you're, if you're done, you just veer off to the side of the road and tap out and, and you can be in a pub within, yeah. within five minutes. Um, yeah, it's, uh, yeah, I, I'm not sure. Is there any, uh, are there any moves being made towards kind of curtailing that a little bit in, in, in the climbing community? Yeah, they're, they're trying to. Um, in Nepal, they are going to introduce, well, they're talking about introducing um, minimum mountains that you have to have climbed or minimum elevations okay. you need to have been to. And, and that's really important because even on a, a climb like uh, Lobajay or Island Peak, which they're designed to be acclimatisation peaks, um, they're not technically difficult. It's just a big slope. You don't want to fall because you'll fall off and you'll never be seen again. But mm. it's, it's there's no technically challenging part of the climb. Mm-hmm. Um that's good to get people accustomed to what it's like climbing during the night, climbing in the cold, uh, climbing high altitude, getting an understanding mm. of how hard it is. I mean, sometimes if you're not physically fit, you'll take 10 steps and you need to sit down and you need to do that again and again and again. And all of a sudden, mm. over the course of an hour, you might go, my God, I've only moved 150 metres. <laughs> I've got, I've got 6,000, I've got to get top 6,000 metre climb. So that's an important step. And ultimately, it's just about, people recognizing how difficult Himalayan climbing is mm. and going, I've just because I've done the 
the 1,000 steps in the Dandenong Ranges outside of Melbourne does not mean I'm ready to climb Himalayan mountain. Mm. Um, and it's just because we don't experience climbing on day to day. So it's hard to, to sort of, um, to figure out what it's really like until you get there. Mm, mm. That sort of sparked something, a question in me or a thought around the, the kind of the uncharted territory that we're, we're sort of collectively exploring with regards to um, technology and social media um, these days as well. Um, and people give organizations like Facebook a, um, a hard time and deservedly so. Um, but Ooh. we've got to kind of hold in mind that the success or the scale of an organization like Facebook is completely unprecedented. Um, and yes, it's, it's kind of had an impact on people's um, mental health and well-being. Um, you know, people's kind of chasing of, of again, of status of likes and, 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 uh, you know, the mm. impact um, if you read some of Jonathan Haidt's work around, um, you know, the, the effects on on particularly the, the the emerging generations in terms of anxiety and depression and suicide it's it's quite profound as well as you know the impact on things like elections but really that organization has been charting on, on, on well stepping into uncharted territory it's been um, you know a good percentage of the world's population is now on this platform yeah it's and these big tech companies are a classic example of it's the first time we've had companies this big. I think Apple hit $2 trillion the other day, first of a company mm. to do that. Yeah. So and perhaps Mark Zuckerberg should be, and I'm sure he does surround himself with top quality advisors, but mm. it also raises the question, is there anyone who's experienced enough to run a company like that? And True. it's potentially not because we've, we've never had a business like this before. And you, know, you even look at our Australian responses and international responses to COVID-19, everyone was just figuring out as they went some things went really badly and some yep. things went really well. You know, largely in Australia and New Zealand, we've nailed it apart from maybe one incident that happened at a, a hotel in Melbourne. Mm, um, mm. But at the end of the day, no one knew any different. We were just figuring it out for the first time. Yeah, no, very true. Um, George, this has been fascinating. Um, any other any other stories? Anything we didn't we didn't cover that um, you know the the audience might find interesting in terms of Edmund, his life? Any 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 tales that you might want to leave us with there? Um, I, I guess the ones people always find most interesting are are the mountain climbing stories. And mm. it wasn't until I started going to Nepal myself, um, I actually didn't realise his effect on the climbing world was so much bigger than I realised. And so we're, we're mm. trekking through the Kumbu, the main Everest Base Camp trail. My dad just starts pointing out all these mountains that Ed either climbed first or led the first expeditions on. And it was the sort of thing, if, if this was happening now, and Ed would be the face of Red Bull. <laughs> it'd just be, True. It'd be huge. And it was amazing seeing, um, you, you get into the, the Himalayas and you see Everest, you see Armada Blime, you see Markle, you see Tom Serku just... The, creating this kind of crown around the, the, the trekking trail of the Himalayas and all of them were, were first climbed by Ed and his climbing team. And, and it, for me, that was a lovely moment because it's kind of like I was experiencing something for the first time as well, as opposed to being, to being told all the wonderful things my grandfather did. I was there, seen it as well. Mm. Um, but for, for Ed and then for Dad and also for myself, and whilst you've got to have that passion and drive to get to the top of these mountains... There was, always a, there was always a bigger picture. It was about getting home safely and it was about making those right calls and it was about not getting carried away. And um, you know, Ed had his moments where he pushed himself too far and he, he definitely had times where he 
um, on Markaloo and on the climb with dad where he became very, very sick. And mm. well, my dad had a few times where he was heli, heli evacuated out of the Himalayas <laughs> into Kathmandu to get rescued. And um, I don't plan to find myself in that situation. I, I think I'm probably a bit more, more grounded and <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> want to get home maybe that little bit more. But um, yeah, I think that the lessons I've been able to learn from them is drive and determination are wonderful up until a point. Um, mm. Then you've, then you've got to decide what's most important. Very good. Uh, very good takeaway there. Um, and, and kind of nice segue into some of the rapid fire questions I had for you as well in terms mm. of just, you know, letting the, letting the, uh, the listeners get to know you a little bit better. Yeah, sure. And you've, you, you've already mentioned obviously mountaineering and climbing, but you know, outside of your day job, uh, you know, what do you, what do you like to, what do you like to do for fun? What are some of your kind of interests and uh, out, outdoorsy, outdoorsy uh, pursuits I'm assuming are going to be in there somewhere? Yeah, I, I love doing a whole range of things, to be honest. And it's funny, one of the things that drives my fiance nuts, she's like, do you ever just sit still, just relax? Um, <laughs> but when I was my teenage years and early university, I was in a band. I loved my music. I was a drummer. Mm. Um, yeah, we, we had the, the rock star dream, perhaps that the rock star talent. So now the drum kit just sits in the garage. Um, like every Melbourneian, I absolutely adore my football. I'll watch any game. Yeah, <laughs> it doesn't matter yeah. who's playing, where it is. I'll make sure I watch it and I love to talk about it. Um, oh God, perhaps I start to get a bit older. I'm looking out at my garden now. I'm starting to really enjoy gardening, which is probably nice. a, yeah. a concerning thing. <laughs> um, I, I always love doing different things. And you know, before yeah, we, if we, my fiance and I go away on a trip, I always like to try and learn a bit of the language so I can talk to them. And you know, I'm probably pronouncing all the words incorrectly, but we all have a bit of a laugh and it's a bit of fun. It's it's amazing how far uh, just a little bit of trying to learn the language gets you in a place. If you can if mm. you can fumble your way through a sentence or two, people are far more forgiving than if, than if you just barrel in barrel in with uh, with with English with no attempt. So um, yeah, yeah, I think they, they love it. They kind of respect it too. Yeah, my the the one saying I can still remember from uh, like my time in Mongolia is, and I, again my pronunciation of this is going to be horrible. So I'm sure my thousands of Mongolian listeners will, um, will write in and tell me. But it's like Malsareg Targan Tavtayu, which kind of translated to "I hope your animals are fattening nicely," which in, <laughs> out in kind of like rural Mongolia went down a treat. Um, it's like yeah. Anyway, <laughs> it's amazing what you remember. I'm, I'm sure that's a very important saying in rural Mongolia, to be honest. I, oh, apparently it was like uh, unless yeah. unless uh, unless the person who taught it to me was having a laugh and I just said something <laughs> deeply deeply rude and offensive. So um, I, I I abdicate responsibility there. Um, <laughs> what are you What are you reading right now? Are you uh, Are you digging into anything anything interesting from a reading or listening perspective? Yeah, I, like everyone, I always want to read more, but never seem to read as much as I want to. Um, mm-hmm. I'm a a bit of actually a physics nerd at heart. I'm reading a Carlo Rovelli book. He's this uh, Italian physicist that seems to somehow describe science like poetry. He's, he's really good. Okay. Um, he goes to a level of physics and maths that I, to us, I, I can't really keep up with what he's talking about, but it kind of sends me into this different world, you know, trying to understand um, theoretical physics and string theory and quantum, <laughs> quantum gravity or whatever they're talking about. Yeah, right. Nice. Carlo Rovelli? Carlo Rivelli, yeah, he's, he's fantastic. Um, okay. He, he wrote a book called uh, Seven Brief Lessons of Physics, which I think is the most, the highest selling science book ever. Okay. Um, and just, the, yeah, the way he describes it, he's like a poet. It's really cool. Cool. 
Um, what's the name of the book you're reading at the moment? Just so I can pop it in the show notes for people. Oh, sorry, I just lost you there for a bit. Oh, uh, what was the name of the the book? Just so I can pop it in the show notes for people. Uh, oh God, I'm trying. It's, I could quickly go check for who you want. It's, oh, you, um, can, you you can you can send me afterwards after, afterwards. Okay, okay, yeah, yeah. yeah no, so no, I actually no just blanked on the name. The passage of time, something about time. <laughs> something about time. Cool, cool. I'll tell you one series of books I'm really looking forward to. A mate told me about them. Um, and now that we've got a kind of three month old uh, baby in the house, apparently there's this set of books written by, um, I, d- I don't know the chap, but he's a, you know, he's a scientist, but they're, they're like quantum physics, quantum mechanics uh, for babies, like string theory for babies. So all these, oh, like, really? all these like super deep, um, you know, technical topics uh, written, written for, you know, for, uh, for, for toddlers and infants <laughs> so hopefully yeah. i'll hopefully That's i'll really learn cool. something by reading them as well because i have no idea um <laughs> yeah I, I think i think what i really find amazing about it and actually helps you just think a bit more widely in general is it comes down to this point that time itself can be subjective when you mm. get onto a, a large scale and things are moving towards the speed of light and that really blows your mind when something we all take for granted of this happened at 12 o'clock it gets to this point of well, when was 12 o'clock or when did that really happen how did it happen mm. and that's that's sort of the possibility of all this work. And, 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 and just also our subjective experience of time, right? You know, mm. we all, we, we've all had that experience of being in a deep flow state and being in something and looking up and five hours have passed and, and, we've, and it was the blink mm. of an eye and we've all had the opposite experience of kind of sitting, sitting in a waiting room and, uh, and a minute feels like an hour. So, uh, yeah, time is, a, time is a weird and wonderful thing. Yeah, yeah, it sure is. Um, any parting thoughts, any asks of the, uh, asks of the audience? Uh, that's, a, that's a really good point, actually. Um, and apart from the, the cliche of just looking after each other and being open-minded and mm-hmm. creating a, a greater purpose behind what everyone does. And I think it's, it's pretty easy for, in our own lives, we've all got stresses of family stresses, work stresses, paying bills. It's so easy sometimes just to, to think that you can't do anything to make a difference. But mm. is that, and, and I hope that people on a large scale society don't forget that collectively all the little things we do make a huge difference from, you know, if you're a boss in your workplace, um, buying your colleagues a coffee, that sort of act of kindness, it really, it, it propagates from there. Um, mm. and, and that's one of the things I'm always really proud of with the charity work we do is, is the, the schools and the hospitals we build in Nepal, not, sorry, not me personally, but I help fundraise for, um, the people who receive that, that good work, that goodwill, you can be certain that they're going on to do great things. Um, the, the students in their schools become doctors. They're not running off to Beverly Hills to become plastic surgeons to the rich mm-hmm. and the famous. Um, mm-hmm. They're donating their time as well. They're doing wonderful things. The students that become engineers, they're coming back to these communities to build schools and hospitals and goodwill breeds more goodwill. Um, and I just hope that people don't forget that and, you can be on all levels from, from your workplace to help in the environment, turn the light off, catch a, catch a train, catch a bus, you don't have to drive, um, you know, do a Zoom meeting instead of flying to, to another state for a meeting, that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. People forget how powerful our individual decisions are. Beautiful. That's a, that's a, that's a wonderful positive message to, to leave on. And um, oh, George, where can, where can folk find you and where can, where can kind of they get in touch or, or get involved if they, uh, if they've moved to do so? Yeah. I, the, the best place to, to keep up my, my climbing travels is just via Instagram. George mm-hmm. M. Hiller is the, the tag there. 
Um, right. But check out the Australian Himalayan Foundation. They're mm. always doing an absolutely wonderful job. The, the team's based up in Sydney and um, I always get involved as often as I can with fundraising events here in Melbourne or, or up in Sydney and we're, we're looking to do a few more uh, virtual events and also because potentially our trekking trips in Nepal are postponed um, mm. until further notice, we're really looking at doing some, some local stuff whether it's in mm. the Blue Mountains, going to Kosciuszko um, or anywhere else in Australia. Um, I believe I've put them in contact with the, the guys from Gone Bush mm. Adventures because mm-hmm. um, we're going to try and bring that trekking experience but have it a bit more homegrown. That's awesome. All right, I'm definitely getting involved with that. That sounds, uh, cool. that sounds fantastic. Awesome. Um, George, it's been an absolute pleasure. Um, thank, you for, thank you for spending the time. Thank you for coming on. Thank you for sharing some stories and uh, uh, you know, some, some lessons and, and uh, letting the world know a little bit more about your, uh, about your granddad and about yourself. So um, yeah, my, uh, my gratitude oh, to much. you. It's been great to have a chat. All right. Uh, And to all you listening, um, take care of each other, stay well, and we'll see you next time. And that's it for another episode. If you got value from that conversation, there are several ways you can support the show. You can tell a friend. That's the most direct and meaningful way. You can give us a rating or a comment on iTunes or Spotify. And if you're interested in engaging in a dialogue about anything you heard on the show today or anything else related to conscious leadership, coaching, facilitation, program design, uh, you can find me at philcross.net and all the links to relevant social media pages or my contact information you can find there. And finally, you can help by engaging with our sponsors, So this episode is brought to you by Gone Bush Adventures. And if you're on a mission to create more natural, enriching, meaningful, professional development experiences and events for your leaders and teams, then Gone Bush Adventures are the people for you. With a team of experienced facilitators, presenters, nature guides and learning consultants, they exist to walk alongside leaders and organizations towards a new vantage point of performance, culture and well-being. And, you know, the the ad read aside, one of the reasons why I'm proud to have Gone Bush as a sponsor is uh, I feel a real alignment with them, the work they do, the approach they take to uh, professional development and leadership development and the setting they do it in as well. They uh, host retreats in you know some of Australia's most, most beautiful places. Uh, so if, if that sounds up your alley, um, go to gonebushadventures.com.au uh, and if you uh, feel moved to engage them, just mention the podcast um, because it's always nice to to get that kind of feedback okay until next time stay well